Small warning before we get into the first story. The story acts as a giant metaphor for addiction, similarly to the story that we read the other day. It also has um, some small depictions of self-harm, so if that is something that you don't want to listen to, the timestamps will be on the screen for the entirety of the story. It's Okay to Let Go by Brandon Fairclaw. It was about 6.15 when I headed up to the women's bathroom on the 8th floor. In the past few weeks, it had become a Friday afternoon ritual. Staying late until everyone else had left the 5th floor for the weekend, looking like a diligent employee just working ahead on the next week's projects. And then, after the door was closed for the last time, slipping back into Murray's office for a small withdrawal from the petty cash drawer to... Well, work ahead on the only project for the next week that really seemed to matter. Murray was the office manager, but he also had issues with booze and gambling, and in the three years since his wife left him, he'd really gone off the rails. Last April, I noticed him dipping into the cash box before ducking out it, too, but at the time, I just filed the information away as potentially useful nugget if we ever got a jam or needed leverage. And then, three months ago, I started hanging out with a crowd that snorted powder on the regular. Nay-or-do-well types that were way more interesting than the ex-boyfriend that had introduced me to them. At first, I joined in on the coke to be sociable, then because it made everything brighter and sharper and more fun. Now? Now I was stealing petty cash, drifting in the wake of a 50-year-old alky gambler. Also, I was topped off the next week to buy some more booger sugar. Murray would probably never catch on, and even if he did, what would he do that wouldn't implicate himself? Still, the risk was always there, if there was ever a department audit, and it wasn't like I wasn't taking a bit more every time. It was becoming a very expensive hobby, and I was having trouble convincing myself that the ritual was optional anymore. But that was negative thinking, and I didn't need to spoil my favorite time of the week with negative thinking. It was already 6 o'clock, and the guards usually started their evening check at the floors around 7. They wouldn't care I was still in the building, but I'd rather not have them notice me lurking around the bathrooms three floors up from where I worked. But after the cash box, I had to hit the stairwell. The unfrequented, uncamered stairwell that had a dark recess behind the first floor stairs. It hadn't been cleaned or even looked at in years, and no one was going to find the little baggie I kept duct-taped in the shadows there. Even if they did, I tried to wipe off any prints when I remembered. That was the big takeaway from my time with Joseph. He of the perpetual unemployment and expensive drug habit who had cooler friends than he deserved. You never hide your stash on you or where you stay. The only way someone was going to catch me with drugs was if I had a blood test or very bad luck, and that's what I had my ritual for. I puffed back up the stairs, past the fifth floor, and onto the eighth, a little bag of power feeling warm in my pocket. I was already getting excited, and the sweat in my armpits wasn't just from a few flights of stairs. (sighs) Shit, how deep in this did I really want to go? How long before the hobby went from habit to ritual or something worse. Shaking away the thought, I pushed open the door to the bathroom and went in, looking for any feet under the stalls before going to the handicap stall at the far end. This was one of the perks of the even-numbered floors. Spacious, handicapped stalls with their own mirrors and sinks. No chance of coming out with white smudges on my nose or looking more fucked up than I could handle. I could write out the initial rocket holding onto the thoughtfully placed metal railing beside the toilet and then do another small courtesy bump once I knew I was handling my shit and could go down to hail a cab. Another necessary expense. You don't drive when you're fucked up on cocaine. I put the seat down on the toilet for the first line and then for my ass. But always in that order, especially now, when my skin was starting to crawl and my stomach was twisting, telling me I was behind schedule. I opened the bag and tapped out half into a single rail. I already had the tube and my favorite ballpoint pen ready in my purse, and once I fished it out, it was off to the... But... I don't want to. 
froze. The voice had come from two stalls down. A woman's voice, watery with tears. What the fuck? How hadn't I seen her when I came in? Was she standing on the damn toilets? And No one had come in since I'd gotten here, I was sure of it. I looked down skeptically at the line on the toilet seat and then the tiny clear jeweler's bag that held the rest. No. I wasn't fucked up, at least not yet. I hadn't taken something and forgotten, and it had never made me forget stuff anyway. But what should I do? My eternal plan had always been that I would flush anything if I had anyone ever come into the bathroom during my Friday evening party for one, but now that I was faced with it, it was such a waste. And I really wanted it. Maybe, maybe she would just leave in a second. I know you're right, but maybe things will get better. I, I could try to make them better, can't I? Who was she talking to? Maybe she was on the phone? I crept over to the far wall of the stall so I could hear better. The woman was sniffling, and I almost thought I could hear another voice, but it was very faint. The strange thing was that the second voice didn't have the clipped tenny quality I expect from the other side of a phone call. It was soft, but it sounded natural. Present. Frowning, I bent down to look under the stalls again. I could see the woman's feet now, scuffed black flats wrapped around pale feet going up into shapeless ankles pinpricked with black stubble. Maybe what the girl didn't want to do was shave. Covering my mouth, I let out a small snicker as I caught a glimpse of a red scab on her calf. Damn, looked like she needed more practice, too. I looked back at the toilet seat. Shit, why wouldn't she just leave? Or should I just hit it and go? Leave moaning Myrtle in here to do whatever she... It's okay to let go. My eyes went wide and I looked under the stalls again. That voice. It was a different voice, a male voice, and it wasn't on the phone. It was in here with us. But there was no sign of another person anywhere, just her white feet shuffling as she let out another sob. I... I know. I... Thank you. Just... You'll stay with me, won't you? Of course I will. I won't leave you. Okay. I... Okay. The woman's feet shuffled again, and then I saw something dripping onto them. A red stream onto the left foot and then the right. What the fuck? That looked like blood. Had she cut herself? As I watched, the woman slumped down onto the floor with a thump. Brown skirt covered in more blood coming into view under the stall as one bloody arm fell down her side. The cut was away from my direction, but I could still see a steady flow of red dripping out onto the tile floor. Fuck me. Ma'am? Are you okay, ma'am? Dumb fucking question, but I really didn't want to get involved with this bullshit if I could avoid it. On the other hand, I'd rather not hate myself for totally ignoring someone that needed help, so asking once seemed like a good middle ground. She told me she was fine. I'd leave her to do her business, whatever that might be. I waited a few seconds, but no response. She was still moving around, so she was conscious, and while she was still bleeding out, it was slow. She had time to ask for help if she really wanted it. It hurts. It hurts a lot. Grimacing, I sat back up. Did that count as asking for help? Her whispering that cutting her fucking arm hurts? No shit it hurts. But did that mean I had some duty to... I know, Shelley. I know. But it will stop soon. And you know you deserve the pain, don't you? 
heart started thudding. The blood had made me forget about the mystery voice for a moment, but it was still there, louder than before. Who the fuck was that? I I know I do. Thank you. I'm just scared. It's alright to be scared. I've been scared for weeks you wouldn't do the right thing, but here you are. I'm so proud. So proud, and I love you. Just relax and let go. Fuck this. Standing up, I opened the door and headed for the woman's stall. I was about to knock on it when I noticed the blood creeping out under the floor outside of her little cubicle. Whatever was going on, I really didn't want to be stepping in blood or leaving evidence that I was here unless I really decided I had to stay. And who knew what was actually going on in here? Maybe it was just a great-sounding phone and it wasn't blood at all, or maybe there was some killer in there with her. I just needed to go to get a better peek before I decided what to do. Holding my breath, I eased to open the door of the stall next to hers, tense for any movement or sound from the other side of the wall. The toilet lid squeaked as I put it down, and then again as I stepped up on it so I could look over in the woman's stall. What I saw first was her, a few years younger than me. She was chubby and red-faced from crying, but still prettier than I'd ever be. Her green, red-rimmed eyes found mine immediately, but there was a dazed look to them. She was fading, and the lines of red up her inner arms were still pulsing the rest of her life out onto the bathroom floor. I was about to speak to her again, tell her that I'd get help or something when motion caught my eye. There was something watching me from the toilet. I shuddered as I tried to make sense of what I was seeing. Something long, broad, and white, almost like a fat snake or legless lizard, coiled up in the bowl of the toilet and stared up at me. Its flat, triangular head was pocked with dozens of small black holes that seemed to shift and melt, forming and reforming into pits of dark on that ivory skin. Darkness that could see me. I stumble fell off the toilet, banging into the door before flinging it open and bouncing off the sink on the way out of the door. I had to get away. I had to get far away. And I was sorry about that poor woman, but whatever she had done or it had done or it had made her do or whatever, I couldn't be there. I couldn't be connected with any of... The fucking cocaine in my fucking purse. I stopped ten feet from the door to the stairwell. I couldn't go back in there. I couldn't. But I also couldn't leave drugs and stuff with my name on it fifteen feet away from a dead body. Leaning against the wall, I felt my gorge rising. I had to go back in there. I... I hadn't really seen some kind of fucking toilet monster in there. I was in shock, that was all. Or the coke was getting to me more than I'd be willing to admit. Either way, I needed to get my shit out of there and then walk out of the building like nothing was wrong. I glanced down the hallway both ways. It could work. That was the other reason I picked the 8th floor. Aside from the spacious install, floors 7 through 10 didn't have cameras in the hall. No record of me being up there at all, so long as I didn't fuck up because of a hallucination or whatever. Just get in and out quick. That was the key. Forcing myself to take slower breaths, I walked back to the bathroom door and listened. Everything was quiet in there. Hell, maybe I'd open the door and nothing would be wrong at all. No snake monster, no dying woman, just some misfired synapse in my fucked up brain. Sucking in a deep breath, I pushed the door back open. The woman was still there. The blood now pooling out halfway toward the sink. 
My eyes went everywhere as my heart began to hammer harder, but I saw no sign of the monster or anything else. Either way, I just needed to hurry up and get it done. Hopping over the blood, I went back to my stall. Pulling a paper towel from the dispenser, I raked the coke off into the towel and then flushed it and the baggie down. I quickly dusted my hands off over the bowl for good measure. I grabbed my purse and opened the stall door. Now I just had to make it out of the building normally because there were cameras down in the lobby. Suddenly all my plans fled as my eyes found the monster. It was out there, waiting, just curled up with its head raised like a thoughtful cobra, gently swaying in some unfelt breeze from its spot under the fold-out baby-changing station. My stomach dropped as I stopped in my tracks. Was it going to attack me? It was a good ten feet from the door, but snakes could strike really far, couldn't they? And this thing wasn't a snake. Whatever it was, I didn't know what it could or might do. Still, waiting just gave it more time to decide. Gripping the handle of my purse so I could swing it, I stepped over the blood and eased slowly toward the door, keeping turned toward the thing as it watched me. The darkness on its head continued to swim in the soft fluorescent lights overhead, and I found myself getting queasier as I looked at it. Reaching the door, I closed my eyes and shoved my way through, making it halfway down the hall before I looked back and slowed myself from a run. It wasn't following. I'd gotten away. At least, if I didn't stand out in the hall like an idiot. My hands trembled on the railings as I went down the stairwell to the first floor, and I stuffed the free one in my pocket as I entered the lobby and passed through through the street. A couple of minutes later, I was in a cab, and in half an hour, I was at home, trying to convince myself it had all been some kind of bad dream. Luke called me the next day, which was unusual on the weekend. I already knew what he was going to tell me. Did you hear about the woman on the eighth floor yesterday? I tried to sound bored but I could still hear a slight tremble in my voice. No. What'd she, what, what'd she do? Uh, well, she killed herself. Some chick that works for that investment firm on the 8th slid her rest in the bathroom up there. They didn't find her until sometime last night, and she'd already been dead a little while then. Swallowing down bile, I waited a second for replying. Shit, that's that's terrible. Any idea why she did it? She leave a note or something? Uh, no, no note, I don't think. I'm buddies with Tom down in security. He said they hadn't found anything like that. Don't say anything to anybody, but he told me one of the cops said she had little cuts all over, though. Most in places people couldn't see. Old cuts, like she'd been working up to... Well, what she did, I guess. Luke cleared his throat awkwardly. <clears throat> uh, anyway, sorry to bother you on the weekend. Just thought you might want to know. And it was weird, and I wanted someone to tell it to. And listen, if you ever want... Bye, Luke. I hung up and tossed the phone under the coffee table. Suddenly, I just wanted to sleep for a few days. Trudging back to my bed, I swallowed down a couple of pills before crawling back under the covers. It was dark when I heard the distant sound of water splashing. I was still groggy, and at first I wondered if I was having a dream that I was swimming or on a beach, but no. I was in my bed. And it was... night? And the splashing in another room had been replaced by a soft thump. I wanted to look, but I was still so sleepy, and it was probably nothing. Just a fragment of a dream. I gave another token glance around the park and then burrowed my head back down into my pillow, drifting back off immediately. My own yell woke me up as 
pain seared across my inner thigh. I reached down reflexively and felt my fingers bump against something hard and scaly as it moved away from the small welling cut just above my knee. Yanking my legs up with a scream, I rolled out the other side of the bed and turned back to watch as the bulge shifted under my blanket. I turned on the closet lamp as this thing's white head poked out from under the covers to stare at me from those ever-shifting voids. It stared at me and speak, its voice so soft and oddly soothing as it moved closer to the edge of the bed. I understand. I do. This must all be very confusing, frightening even, but... Don't worry. That will pass. It will pass, and you will come to accept me. More importantly, to accept yourself. I shook my head. I... What are you... What do you want? Creature swayed slightly, a small speck of red and white on its skin, the only sign of what it had done to my leg. I saw no mouth or nose, no real face at all. Just that same staring, swimming darkness that its pleasant voice seemed to come from as it responded. I want to help you. Help you be honest with yourself. You try to lie. Say you don't hate yourself, but we both know that's not true. You promise yourself you'll do better. Make those that love you proud, but it's just another lie, isn't it? I felt tears come to my eyes as I nodded. And why is it a lie, Justine? My nose started to run as I sniffled my answer. Because I never do. And because nobody really loves me. The creature gave a slight nod. That's right. At least, mostly right. Because I love you. I felt in my chest warming as I looked at him in disbelief. You do? Do you really? He nodded again. I do. And I won't ever leave you. Not until it's over. I'll take time for you to see things my way, I'm sure. But in the end, you'll see that it's okay to hate yourself just as much as I love you. And eventually, you'll understand. The tears were streaming down my face now, my heart filled to bursting with both black despair and a burning sense of gratitude that he would love me and stay with me despite how terrible I was. Wanting to please him, I asked the only question that came to mind. I'll understand what? He paused a moment before he responded, and I was afraid I made him angry. But when he did speak, his voice was so gentle and full of love that I started to cry even harder. That it's okay. It's okay to let go. I tried astral projection. Something followed me back. By Brandon Faircloth. I only met Aaron Galt once. I was called in to do a forensic interview of the girl as part of a 72-hour observation period before she was turned over to juvenile justice and sent to a detention center based on the warrants that had been taken the day before. Stepping into the room with her, I felt a wave of sadness and confusion wash over me. Erin was 16 and small for her age. Her chart put her at 5'4 and just over 90 pounds. When she looked up, her expression wasn't that of a hardened killer or a deranged monster. It was that of a very frightened and fragile young woman, flinching to the sharp edges of a hostile world. And yet, and yet, according to what I'd been told, two days before, she had butchered her entire family. This had happened at their home, a two-story house in a pleasant neighborhood outside the city. The yard was always cut, the family was well-liked and well-thought-of, and even as I sat down across from her, I'd learned of no hint of trouble within this family prior to their deaths. No domestic calls, no reports of the children acting out at school, nothing other than a break-in a couple of years earlier. I didn't rule out abuse, of course, 
and abuse was a common catalyst in these kind of scenarios, but only one of many. My hope was, through talking to Erin, I could learn why she had done these terrible, terrible things. I introduced myself, explained that while this interview was part of an observation period for her safety, it was also part of the ongoing investigation. That while I wasn't law enforcement, anything we talked about wouldn't be privileged and might be used against her later on. She nodded and said that was fine, that she'd talk to her appointed lawyer and guardian about it and she was ready to answer any questions I had. We went through the initial rapport building and introductory questions, and Erin was cooperative enough. She was still skittish acting, her eyes frequently darting to the walls before lighting back on me for a few moments, and I asked my next question, but she seemed happy to have someone to talk to, even if I was a stranger. I took her through initial questions about her family, who they'd been, where they worked, how she got along with them. Erin grew... Very sad during this part, sniffling and pausing frequently without ever shutting down or refusing to answer. I had this idea of her carefully threading her way through a canyon of guilt and pain and bad memories, though whether she was recalling the murders themselves or something that precipitated them, I couldn't say. Still, when I asked the opening, non-suggestive questions related to any kind of abuse, there were no indications of reluctance or defensiveness or lying. Just a soft, no, nothing like that. No one has ever hurt me like that. I could be wrong, but I believed her. So I decided to try a different approach. Rather than drill down into the murders themselves, what she remembered, could she explain what happened and why, I simply asked what else she wanted to tell me. The transcript that follows details that portion of my conversation with Aaron Galt. So, Aaron, part of my job is getting answers to certain questions, but I also want to know what you have to say. So, let's take a break from me quizzing you, okay? What do you want to tell me? Anything at all about whatever you like. Something that's on your mind, or important, or that you think I need to know. This won't be your only chance to tell me stuff during our interview, of course, but I'm interested in hearing what you want to talk about. I'm going to go grab you a drink while you think about it. You want anything? Uh, no. Thank you. Okay, honey. Be right back. <sighs> That's better. Any thoughts on what you'd like to tell me? Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I know what I need to tell you. It probably won't help you understand, but it's true, and I need to tell somebody if you'll listen. Of course I will. Go ahead. I'd never tried astral projection before. I, I'd heard of it, sure. Watched videos about it when I was bored, that kind of thing, but my friend Hugo, he was always the one really into that shit. Uh, stuff. He would try to do seances, he read books on trances and ESP, he even tried to do a spell a couple of times. I went along with some of it, sure, but I never believed in any of it. It was just to make him happy, because, you know, he was my friend. Sure, sure. And did he get you to try astral projection? Yeah. This was like a month ago? We were up in his room, like his mom wasn't home, which was the only reason we could be out there like that. Not that we weren't hooking up or anything. I think maybe he likes me a little, but we aren't like that. I, I don't like him like that. Okay, I, I understand. But he is my best friend. And when he told me about this new book that he read on astral projection, it sounded kind of cool. Almost just like meditation or something, right? something real instead of the ghost stuff he was usually into. And when he asked me if I'd try it with him, I said yes. So, we lay down on the floor of his room, side by side but not touching. And he talked to me, told me what to picture, what words to repeat in my head, said that I didn't need to concentrate, that the book said it wasn't about holding on, it was about letting go. At first I just felt sleepy. But then I felt something kind of 
a shift. Like my brain wasn't my brain anymore, or like it wasn't made of meat anymore. It was just steam floating around, thinking my thoughts as I went down. Because that was the thing. It wasn't like a lot of those videos I'd watched or things Hugo had told me. I wasn't floating above my body or flying through the ceiling to go travel somewhere. I was going down, deeper inside myself, or that's... That's what it felt like. It... It was like... It was like the waking me was a door, okay? And it somehow opened the door and found a house on the other side. Some huge secret house that was built like a regular house. Like my... My family's house. It was built down and it went on for a long, long way. So I started to go down. And I could see it in my head... As I went, though it was weird. Kind of like seeing it, but kind of like feeling it too. Maybe like how a bat feels stuff with their sonar. I don't know. But I could tell I was going downstairs to a lower floor, and then another, and then another. The rooms were all empty and dark, but I could still see, and I wasn't scared, just curious and excited because I could tell this wasn't just my imagination. I was really doing something, really going somewhere. I went down and down, and the rooms started to get weirder. The walls were the wrong shape, and the floors would seem longer and shorter than they should be. I started to find doors that were closed where they'd all been open, and it got harder and harder to push through. Still, I was determined. This was all really cool and special, and it made me feel really happy, because it made me feel special too. I know this all sounds dumb, but I'm telling the truth. I trust you, Aaron. I don't think it's dumb at all. Go on, please. Okay, thanks. Um, So, I get to the point where the rooms are moving some. Like the walls change places and corners don't stay where they are. And sometimes it feels like I'm in something alive. Like the rooms are breathing around me. It's a bit spooky, but I don't want to give up. I have this idea that I'm close to finding something really important, so I keep going. That's when I find the green door. Everything else has been kind of gray like an old movie or something. No colors, or maybe it was because it was all dark. But that door wasn't dark. I could see it from across the room when I came down the stairs, a little bit of glowing green like an emerald, winking at me, saying, Come here, come here. So I went. The door was different than the others. They'd all been plain. They reminded me of the doors in our house, I guess. Just regular doors. But this one was all carved and polished. With a big brass knob in the middle of the door, there was a picture. It was carved into the wood, and it kept changing as I watched. I... I don't remember what it was now. It was so many things, and I can't keep them in my head. But I know it made me happy and afraid at the same time. And when I grabbed the knob, it was hot on my hand. Hot enough, I was afraid that it might burn me if I wasn't quick. So I turned it. The door opened, and I went on through. I wasn't in a house now. The floor was rock, and I couldn't see any walls to the side or in front of me. Maybe it was a cave, I don't know. It went on for a long time. Felt like I'd been walking for hours by then, but I wasn't tired, and I wanted to see what was next. I started to see light ahead. I was close to... I think it was a field. A field that was bright and blue with red grass and white trees that grew in every direction. Up and down, side to side, weaving through each other as they went. Except they weren't just trees. They were buildings. This was some huge, beautiful city, some kind of impossible place. Like where fairies might live. I felt this pure kind of... This sounds cheesy, but it was joy. Joy and, like, longing. Like I finally had found something really special and true. I was about to start running toward it when I stopped. 
There was a noise behind me. Something had moved somewhere in the dark. I could feel myself starting to panic as I turned around. Its eyes were on me. Six glowing golden eyes like spinning coins, drawing me in, draining me of that happiness and hope. I couldn't move, but the darkness moved around me, shifting the light of that bright living city behind the the gloom of the thing that was now blocking my way. I didn't know what it was, but I kind of did, too. I think it's like this little dog we used to have, Puppers. He'd never been out in a bad storm, but he still knew to be afraid of them, like he could smell how dangerous it was. I... I could tell how bad this thing was. So I ran. Running there wasn't like real running. I made my way back way faster than I went down, too fast, and I could feel that thing behind me. I I should have taken more time. I should have made sure I shut the doors behind me, but I was scared. So, so scared then. And do you need to take a break? No, I... I want to finish it. So you understand. I... I went all the way back up, and when I opened my eyes, I was back in Hugo's bedroom. He was sitting on his bed with a worried look on his face. He told me that the astral projection stuff hadn't worked for him. He tried for a few minutes before giving up, but I'd been laying there for nearly two hours. At first, he thought I'd just gone to sleep, but when he couldn't wake me up, he'd gotten scared but was also worried about waking me up if I really was doing it. Said he was giving me a few more minutes and then he was going to try and wake me up again before calling for help. He left when he said that last, but he wasn't joking, not about any of it. He asked me what had happened, what I'd seen. But I told him I needed to think about it first and then we could talk. Hugo didn't push it, though I could tell he wanted to. Now that he saw he was okay, he was getting more excited again, and he was disappointed when I told him I needed to head home. Because I wasn't okay. I remembered all of that I just told you, and my heart was still beating like I was being chased by that thing with glittering eyes. It was two days before I got any sleep, and even then it was never good rest. Hugo kept texting to check on me and see if I was willing to share what had happened yet. I lied, telling him I was fine. After a week, I'd changed my mind about telling him about it, too. I just lied and said I didn't remember anything. That I just must have fallen asleep. Was there any reason in particular that you chose not to tell Hugo about what you'd seen? Yeah. I started to see holes in the walls. Just... Little things at first, little red rotten spots like a cold sore or an ingrown hair, but on the wall. Not a particular wall. It might be at school or in a locker room. Or on the side of the house or in my bedroom, but it would be there. This little raw bumpy hole that I could tell no one else could see or touch. And every day it got bigger. What was it? I don't know for sure. After a month, I saw the hole somewhere almost everywhere I went. Not always the same spot, but always somewhere around. It was following me, and it was getting bigger. The edges of it looked black now, like it was burned or dying, and there were little bubbles of white all along that rotten part that would move a little. Not like the way the rooms breathed. This was wrong feeling, a sick little shudder that made my brain hurt when I saw those pus bags or whatever start to shift. I got so I was afraid to look around much, and I was so tired by that point I found myself falling asleep randomly, losing time. She looked up from the table, her eyes red and her lips pressed thin as she met my gaze. And then one night, I woke up covered in blood. My parents' blood. Jake's blood. Her face began to crumple. 
think I'm done now. Nodding silently, I reached out and patted her arm. I wanted to comfort her. Her story wasn't true, of course. Some fantasy she'd constructed to cope with the horrors of what she had done and experienced, but I had little doubt that she believed it herself. Whatever crime she had committed, she was a very disturbed girl who needed treatment, and when I left the interview room, I was determined to help her get it. The next day, I'd got the call that she had killed herself. That was nearly three years ago. A day hasn't gone by since that I don't think about Aaron and feel a measure of guilt, questioning if I could have done something different that might have helped more, wondering if there was some missing puzzle piece that would give the whole thing shape and make more sense. But then I got a call from Bill Burke. Bill had been the primary investigator on the Galt case. He was a good cop and a good man, and having worked with him on several cases over the years, I had a sense of how deeply disturbed he was by how everything had turned out with Aaron. It had been over a year since we last talked, and when he called, I assumed it was about a new case. No, nothing like that. Actually, I retired last week. In fact, that's why I'm calling you now. I wanted to call before, but I told myself there was no sense putting my job at risk. No one here wanted to hear what I had to say, and I worried that telling you might only stir things back up again. I knew what he was talking about without him saying. This is about Aaron Galt, isn't it? I felt his weariness as he sighed into the phone. Yep. I... Well, I know I told you some details of what happened before you went into the interview with her, but I had some more ideas I kept to myself. Some of that was confirmed the next week when we got the autopsy reports back. Okay, like what? He cleared his throat uncomfortably. Uh Like only one of the Galts was killed in their sleep. Our little brother Jake had his throat slit, and based on the injury, the arteral spray in the bedroom, and the lack of defensive wounds, it's it's likely he never woke up. Shit, well, I, I guess that's better than the alternative. Yeah, I guess it is. But the doctor also said that both the parents had been stabbed multiple times in the neck and chest, with additional defensive wounds on their hands and arms. Dad died in the hallway. Mom in the master bedroom behind a locked door that had been broken in. Oh, God. I know. But that's not all. The blood spray on the walls. Our crime scene guy thinks they were standing up when they were trying to fight her off. And they were still standing up when they started getting stabbed. Okay. The significance of this, to me is that the stab wounds were all at a downward angle. Now, Rex Gaunt was 6 foot tall, 250 pound man. Clarice Gaunt was 5 foot 7, weighed about 150. Yet somehow, this little 90 pound girl that was barely 5'4 managed to not only overpower them when they're fighting, but stab them like she was taller than they were. I felt my mouth going dry. Oh no. So you think she didn't do it? Someone else was in the house? I felt tears welling in the corner of my eyes. Fuck, that poor girl. She... No. I think she did it. At least in a manner of speaking. She was covered in their blood. The two knives only had her fingerprints and there was no trace of any other person being in that house. Yeah, maybe so, but... If what you're saying is true, how could she possibly... I know. I thought the same thing. Even after she... Well, after Aaron was dead, I still went through all the evidence. Went back to the crime scene, subpoenaed the phone records, the whole nine yards. 
I was already getting static for wasting resources on a closed case, but I didn't care. I was half convinced from the autopsy report that someone else had done the killings, and I wasn't about to let it go until I was sure one way or the other. His voice had grown rough with emotion. It took a few days, but I finally got a disc in the mail with cloud video from the Galt's streaming security cameras. We'd put two outside and one inside after a break-in a couple of years earlier, and my hope was that it would give me the proof I needed to show what had really happened the night of the murders. Did it? You tell me. I just sent you a link to the cloud folder I uploaded it to. Can you just tell me? I don't know if I want to watch it, and I wouldn't even know what I'm looking for. You'll know. I showed it to my bosses, and those sons of bitches saw it too. They just didn't want to admit it or deal with it. Told me to turn over everything and get back to work on my active cases. I did, but I kept a copy too. Maybe just so I could do this. Share it with you so I wasn't the only one who knew what happened that night. Just go check your email, Paul. I went to say more, but he'd already hung up. I've written this account for my own records and to put down my thoughts on paper, but also maybe so it can be shared someday. I've tried to recall everything accurately, and I think for the most part I've done a good job. My memory of the video, which I've now watched a dozen times, is perhaps the clearest of my memories, and yet it is also one of the most clouded with emotions. Confusion, sadness, and most of all, fear. So I'll end this account with my summary of what I observed in that video, free of any editorializing or follow-up commentary. I've had no luck reaching Bill again, and my own speculations are just that the failings of a desperate mind wanted to apply reason to the impossible. Trying to shut the doors that have already been left open for far too long. So I leave it to you, the listener, to draw your own conclusions from what is described below. The video is from the interior security camera, which has apparently been positioned in a high corner of what looks like the Gaunt's living room. The living room is dark, but the house has an open floor plan, and the camera also shows a large kitchen lit by a hanging light over the sink. No people are visible at first, and overall the scene is still. Then Aaron enters from the right wearing a white t-shirt and blue shorts. She enters from the dark of the living room, so at first it's hard to notice how strange she seems. Parts of her body are blocked by furniture and shadow, and it isn't until she passes into the kitchen that I can see her head is lolling to one side as though she is asleep or unconscious. Despite this, she makes her way over to the kitchen counter and pulls two large knives from a butcher block. Blade pointed down in each upheld hand, her silhouette looks like it's a drowsing, praying mantis. She glides back toward the right on the path to the exit kitchen for some other room or hallway. It's at this point that I notice the smoothness of her motion, and at a moment later I am able to see her lower legs and feet for the first time. My first panicked thought is that she's somehow walking on tiptoe like a ballerina, but I pause and rewind it several times, and no. Her feet aren't touching the ground at all. Judging the height of the things around her in her own shadow, she looks to be floating about a foot off the ground, her motion forward smooth and seamless, even as her head rolls and her arms lift and sway in a strange, almost boneless fashion. That was what led me to have the video cleaned up further by a friend of mine. She complimented whoever had done the special effects, said that even after studying it, she wasn't sure how they'd done it. I just thanked her and hung up the phone. The enhanced video was clearer, but no less disturbing. I could see finer detail now, like how Aaron's eyes were closed when her face turned toward the camera, or how the floor creaked softly at times, despite the girl's feet being free of the floor. 
or the slight rustle of her shirt fabric and compression of her skin in a dozen different places along her arms and legs and torso. As though she was being carried along by some unseen thing, her limbs worked like a marionette as she drifted toward the night that would end her family, her joy, and her life. I paused the video in that moment, just a second before she passed into the dark, and I studied it for a long time, looking for some hint of the thing that had caught her and was using her so cruelly. Aside from the carry marks at first, I saw nothing. And then there was something new, motion on the frozen frame. Two lines of twinkling gold turned toward me, looking out from that captured moment of that terrible night. I wanted to believe it was a glitch of my computer or my fraying imagination, but I knew better. I knew I intended this to be an objective observation, but I knew what I saw and felt. Those golden lights, those eyes hadn't been there before, and they weren't just looking toward the camera. They were looking at me. I don't understand any of this, and I want no further part. I've erased my versions of the video, but now realize it's not enough. This thing wanted to be seen and known, otherwise it wouldn't have been. And if I can't show others what I've seen, telling them will have to do. So perhaps this is enough. And perhaps you feel tricked as you reach the end. I did tell you I would end this with my description of the video after all. Unblemished by my own conclusions, my own sleepless terror. And I'm sorry for that deception, I truly am. But my hope is that if I satisfy it, it will leave me alone. Because I've started losing time, waking up places I don't remember going, and sometimes, more frequently in the last few days, I've started seeing them. Aaron's holes. Maybe it's all just one big hole, a rotting necrosis in the skin of the world as something pushes its way through. I'm watching it as I write this. And it's getting bigger.